Kids head to the kids' table, and everyone else, please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, verse 1. Uh, Building update. There isn't one. Nah, it's not quite that bad, but there is no more expectation for this building and the reason that's the case is because the sound treatments that have to go up are a very specialized skill and those specially skilled people aren't easy to find so it's just going to be whenever it can get done Um, the the treatments themselves are very expensive Uh, there's a, a box in the foyer that I've forgotten how many sheets of that stuff are in there. I think he said 98 sheets. And that entire box is $18,000 worth of stuff. And uh, it takes a long time to get them when you order them. So you don't want just anybody saying, oh, yeah, I can hang that stuff, because you don't want a lot of waste. You want to measure four times and cut once, not measure twice and cut once. You certainly, certainly don't want to have to cut twice. So... We are having to get someone that's highly uh, experienced with this stuff, and that's just difficult to find, and we can't do the floor until that's done, because that's going to use these big, heavy scissor lifts, and we don't want that on the, uh, either on the carpet or the subfloor, because it could break through. So, this room is basically at a pause at this point, so don't, all the two weeks, nope, not even two weeks now, who who knows what it's going to be, I'm going to, Change my name to two months, Lenora. Two months is when it's going to, and that's a maybe. Uh, They are working on the sanctuary, though. And there are currently no holdups in the sanctuary. So it is possible, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's possible they get the sanctuary done before this room, which blows my mind because we did so well on this room for so long. But that's just the nature of what's going on right now. Everybody needs specialized people in this area, and now we got a whole nother quadrant of the state that is needing people as well, so it's, that's just, just what it is. So, those are the updates. Uh, I believe they have the roof finished on the youth room, uh, the youth building over here. Uh, at least, you know, on. They'll have to come back and finish it, but it, it's on. Um, and things are happening, just not in places that y'all see every week. So, there's the update for the week on the building and tells you what to expect here. So, the bad part of that is this echo that you're experiencing and suffering with. It ain't going away anytime soon. So, that's, that's where we are. We're in Philippians chapter 4 verse 1 this morning. We have uh, come to a... a, a not a pause, but a, a wrap-up in Paul's writing. He, he's gotten to a point now in Philippians where he's about to move into some, uh, some practical advice uh, specific to the church in Philippi. He's going to address an issue in, in chapter 4, verse 2, and then the last half of chapter uh, 4 is going to be a lot of uh, greetings and uh, other thanks, giving thanks at the end of the letter. So he, he's wrapping up, or has is, is wrapped up the theological portion, the, the teaching portion of his letter. And he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, Dear friends, stand firm. That's the, the title of the message. That's his whole purpose in this letter is for them to stand firm. He begins this verse, and just a reminder, most of y'all know this, but it never hurts to remind you, the verse numbers and the chapters, they weren't there. He didn't write chapter 4, verse 1. So then, he, he didn't write it that way. It's a letter, just like you write a letter. You don't put verses and chapter numbers in your letters either. He didn't either. 
but he comes to this paragraph, and he says, so then, strictly speaking, his so then here is in light of verses 12 through 21 of chapter 3. He's, he's specifically throwing you back to that section uh, where he says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it. And then he goes on. But uh, for us, thanks to Hurricane Laura, and for him also, he is writing so then in light of the whole letter. And I say for us because we started this in May of last year, you know, and, or I think it was May, April or May, and then had our, our break uh, for a year. So we need to go back and refresh ourselves on this chapter, on this letter. Now, we're doing this in our connect groups. You're working through Philippians in our connect groups. So you're getting this already and working through uh, the book of Philippians. But he uses some uh, language that he used further back than just ch chapter 3. It, when he says, stand firm, uh, in, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he's actually repeating something he told them to do in chapter 1, verse 27. Standing firm, he says. It, so he, is, he has got, in, in Greek or in, in biblical studies, you call it an inclusio. It includes, it's an ending that references back to a beginning that includes everything in the middle. Inclusio. All right, you hear that? That, that word there, that English word and that Latin word. So that's what he's throwing us back to. He, said, he says, remember, I told you to stand firm at the beginning of this. I'm telling you to do it again. This whole letter is a call to stand firm. And in this verse, this is the imperative. Remember, I'm always going to point out the imperatives to you, especially in letters when Paul says, you do this, the you do this in verse 1 is stand firm. What are we supposed to stand firm in? Well, like I said, strictly verses 12 through 21 of chapter 3, but generally the entire letter. Stand firm, Paul is saying, in all of this that I have told you, in all of this that I have written to you about. Let's go and take a 35,000-foot view of Philippians. Turn back a page or two. What is Paul saying to stand firm in? In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, turn back to chapter 1. Paul is telling them, reminding them in 4.1 to stand firm in your identity. Stand firm in who you are. Who are you, Christian? Well, I just answered that. You are a Christian. He's not telling them to stand firm in any other identity than their faith, than who they are as believers. And in verses 1 and 2, he tells them who they are. He also tells them who he and Timothy are, but by extension, the people he's talking to are. Your identity is slaves and saints with grace and peace. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God. Now it's a blessing. It's, it's, a, it, it's, it's not a necessarily a descriptor, or it's not even uh, a... What word am I trying to come up with here? It, it's not a, a statement of what is happening I can't hear you any better than y'all can hear me. I, know, I appreciate y'all trying to help me, but when y'all say something, if you don't yell it, I can't hear it up here. The echo is just as bad for me, uh, and I can't read lips worth a hoot. So. But you can try one more time. Exhortation. That's a good word. Yes, it, it is an exhortation that, that grace and peace is coming to you. But it is, though he didn't mean it this way, it is a description. You are... We are slaves, he says. Paul and Timothy, we're slaves. You're saints. Now, the, the, the readers would know, hold on, Paul. You, we know you, and, and you know us. We're, we followed you. We are believers because of you. We, you, you. You've got this backwards, and Paul 
is telling them, well, the thing is, it's not backwards, it's who we both are. We are slaves and saints. We are on equal footing as believers. He's letting them know. And not only are, you on, are we on equal footing, but we are equally gifted. And this gift is the grace and the peace that we receive from Jesus Christ. Or from God through Jesus. Or as Paul says it here, from God and Jesus. That is your identity, church. Paul is saying stand firm in your identity as saints and slaves, and in the grace and peace that you receive. Now to stand firm in that would simply mean that I I understand my position as a servant of Christ before anything else. I uh, stand firm in my position as someone who has received peace because of my salvation. That means no matter what goes on around me, whether it's persecution that Paul gets to in the letter, or, or what it is, or storms and viruses, I am at peace. That is your identity. It doesn't matter what's going on around you. It doesn't matter the storms that are past and the storms that are coming up the Texas coast right now toward us, if you haven't been watching the weather. It doesn't matter. Those things do not affect your identity. Do they affect your situation, your setting, on all these? Yeah, but they do not affect who you are. And first and foremost, you are slaves to Christ and saints in the gospel. Stand firm in your identity. Moving forward in the letter, Paul tells them, uh, is reminding them now to stand firm in your responsibility. Verses 12 through 30 of chapter 1. Stand firm in your responsibility. This was our uh, passage for connect groups this morning. Your responsibility is the gospel. That is the believer's responsibility. That is the believer's number one responsibility. And if you must choose between it and something else, it is your only responsibility. And he covers two different scenarios of what it will be like or could be like to share the gospel. First, your responsibility to advance the gospel in hardship. And he talks about being in prison and, and you know, that's, that's a hard thing. And y'all talked about it this morning in Connectory. It was difficult and it would have been very easy for him to say, oh man, I'm in prison. I can't share the gospel like I wanted to. I'm, I'm stealing your, your words, honey. Um, It would be easy to say, I can't share the gospel like I wanted to. And instead, Paul says, a new church, a new congregation, a new way to reach out. I wasn't expecting that, but hey, prison's good too, because I get to share the gospel while I am here. But broadly, again, 35,000 foot view here, when we continue to advance the gospel in hardship, we do so because unbelievers are watching us. They claim Christ. They claim grace and peace. That's who they say they are. They're saints. They're holy. They serve this God of theirs. Well, let's see what happens when something knocks them on their rear ends. It's the whole devil talking to God about Job thing. Oh, he only serves you because you bless him. Take away the blessing see what happens. Unbelievers approach it the same way. Now, some aren't skeptical and some aren't rooting against your failure, but they are curious. How will you react in hardship? We will continue, should continue, as Paul did to advance the gospel. But it isn't just unbelievers that are watching. It is believers that are watching. Our brothers and sisters across the country watched after Hurricane Laura, to see how southwest Louisiana believers reacted. Again, probably not with skepticism. Probably not going, well, let's see what they do now. It wasn't that, but they see us. They observe us. And our response in hardship, our faithfulness in hardship, our maintaining our identity as slaves and saints in hardship strengthens those believers. 
I've had a couple of phone calls and some text messaging uh, conversations with pastors in southeast Louisiana where I've gotten to say, I know exactly where you are, like almost to the hour, what you're thinking right now. And it, it, is, it will get better. And not only will it get better, you and your church will be better afterward because I see it. I have experienced it. I'm looking at it right now. This is not better. But y'all, this is. And it took a hurricane to do it, and I'll take another hurricane again if it will move us even further forward. Yep, I said it out loud. I said the inside parts on the outside, but if that, I know it, I know it, but if a hardship will make us better believers, a more unified church, and stronger in the gospel, I will take every hardship over any blessing. That's all Paul was saying as well. Prison has made uh, uh, the opportunity to share the gospel even more uh, 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 opportunities, more numerous. Because the fact is, your hardship isn't what's important. Your pain isn't what's important. The gospel is. That does not mean God does not care about your pain and your hardship. That means that God knows your pain and your hardship, and despite it, He says, you still have a responsibility. You need to advance the gospel, and this hardship is just one more way I can move you toward that. But not only is Paul, going to tell, is Paul telling them and reminding them to stand firm in their responsibility to advance the gospel in hardship, he's reminding them to stand firm in the, their responsibility that the entire purpose of life is the gospel. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Death is simply a reward. That's all death is. And to give your life for Christ, to, li- to, to die for that, is the ultimate way to experience the reward. The whole purpose of the believer's life, what's the purpose of a servant? To serve. To do the master's bidding. Therefore, our whole purpose is to do what God tells us to do. And what have we been told to do? Make disciples. That's our responsibility. All of life, from the moment we are saved, but really as God's creation to worship Him in general, from the moment we are saved, all of life is about standing firm in the gospel. Verse 27. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel in Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm. So whether I get to visit you or not, I will hear that you're standing firm. Verse 27 of chapter 1. For one, stand firm. Stand firm in your identity as believers. Stand firm in your responsibility of sharing the gospel. Stand firm in your humility. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. He begins by telling them, if, if, if there's anything about being Christ-like, you need to understand. Think this way. Make my joy complete, he says. By, by thinking this way. Having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That was verse 2. Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I said this last week. I'm saying it again this week. Everyone is more important than you. Every one of you is more important than me. Everyone is more important than you are. You are to look out for everyone else first. Now, the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, and we, yesterday, and, and we hear the stories, we're reminded of the stories of people who did this very thing. And if you read some of the backgrounds of some of the people, there's no indication 
for some of them, of any Christian faith. Any, any motivating factor uh, from Jesus. Uh, it doesn't mean they weren't believers, we just, we just don't know. Uh, I, uh, one example I think of that I, I read about uh, yesterday and then read about again this morning, actually saw, talked about in one of the documentaries I was watching, not going to remember his name, he was the um, head of security for Morgan Stanley in, in the buildings, and he was ex-military, and he, uh, after the 90, 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, he said, this is going to happen again. So, quarterly, he made 2,700 employees of Morgan Stanley go through a drill to get out of the building. They were on the 44th floor, I think. He made them go through this drill once a quarter. When the plane hit, they knew exactly what to do. The Port Authority, who owned the buildings, told everybody to stay. This was in the, let's see if I get this right, the, the second tower to be hit. I think it was the South Tower that was hit the second time. Uh, the, the North Tower had been hit. Everybody told the people in the South Tower, stay where you are, you're safer there. He said, no or not, get out. You've been trained, do what I trained you to do. 2,700 people got out. He went back up to make sure everybody was gone, and that was when his building collapsed around him. Now, again, I don't know a thing about his spiritual walk, but he put their interests before his own. Everyone was more important than himself. Now, let's assume for just a moment he was not a believer. Just because just we don't know. Let's assume he wasn't. How much more, as Christians, should we, who have the command from Scripture, put others before ourselves? See them as more important than ourselves. And so I'm going to go into a little bit of a hot topic issue. If that means wearing a mask around people and you think masks are stupid, wear the mask. They're more important than you. If that means getting a vaccine you might not trust as much because you have family members who are older or immunocompromised and you don't really trust it, but the science says do it, you get it because you, may, you put others above yourself. Everyone is more important than you. And if you need an example, Paul says, let's just look at Jesus. Adopt the same attitude, verse 5, as that of Christ Jesus. And I won't read the whole thing, but he emptied himself. He took a cross for you. He took everything out of what, or he took himself out of everything that he was entitled to and said, I'm going to give it all up for these people who are going to kill me and reject me. And I do not believe in limited atonement. I believe Jesus died for everyone, even the people who will never accept him as Savior. So he died, he took all that punishment, he took all that pain for people he knew would never respond in faith. It's one thing to die for somebody who's going to appreciate it. It's something else to die for somebody who's going to mock you for the very death you just went through. Jesus emptied himself. Paul says, stand firm in your humility. Put everybody else first, just like Jesus did. Paul continues in verse 12 and tells them to stand firm in your obedience. Well, first of all, he, he warms us up to this idea back in verse 8 about Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So stand firm in your obedience that is like Christ's. Giving up everything, willing to take whatever comes, the vilest punishment possible, the, the persecution of your family and your friends, and even your faith family, if that's what it takes. Obedience that is like Christ's. In verses 12 through 18, we see obedience that sanctifies. 
Stand firm in your obedience that sanctifies. It is your obedience that makes you a stronger Christian. You don't get sanctified by continuing to sin. That's not the way it works. Paul tells us that we are to work out our salvation as we strive to live blameless through God's power. Obedience that sanctifies. To think of it another way, you do God's will and His work in obedience and it sanctifies you. It makes you more holy. You are already saints, but we are told to sanctify ourselves, to work out our salvation. And yes, Paul's going to say here in just a little bit in verse 12 of chapter 3, I haven't gotten this right yet either. But we keep working for it. We keep being obedient. Stand firm in your obedience. And then in verses 19 through 30, Paul talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. We, we see that Timothy was humble and uh, 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 Epaphroditus emptied himself. And we uh, set ourselves up to follow them. Right? Because Paul is going to say again in chapter 3, verses 12 and following, uh, actually verse 17, join others in imitating me. Look at the ones who are imitating me and imitate them. Timothy and Epaphroditus were those guys that Paul was talking about. Some of the ones we should imitate. The obedience of Timothy and Epaphroditus that leads us uh, to, uh, leads to calling and trust. Stand firm in your obedience like the obedience of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And we will be called to do more things and we will be trusted for more. Here's where I'm afraid some of us are. We don't want God to call us or trust us with more. That's more work, right? I mean, I don't think any of us think this way just, you know, consciously. This is our list of things to do. But I wonder if some of us don't subconsciously think, well, if I don't get, you know, if I don't spend too much time in God's Word, if I don't spend too much time being discipled with other believers, then... I'm less likely to hear God's call, God's leading, and He won't put any more on me. I won't have to do any more. I know that's a horrible way to think, uh, but I just, I just wonder if we don't avoid God so He won't... Now, come on, y'all know it's true. If I stood here and said, all right, anybody want to close us in prayer this morning... 95% of you would be suddenly interested in how white that table is. Oh my goodness, that is a really white table. Is he looking at me? You wouldn't look me in the eye because you'd be scared I would call on you. Right? You didn't want the calling and the trust to close in prayer. Now let's go to Africa. So you see, we won't even do some small things, a lot of us. So maybe we are avoiding sanctification. We're avoiding obedience because we know obedience leads to greater callings, more trust, and harder obedience. Paul says stand firm in your obedience. Beginning chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, Paul tells them to stand firm, tells you, tells me to stand firm in your Christianity. Now, when I say Christianity here, I am not talking about the religion. I'm talking about your reality. I'm talking about your Christ-likeness. Christian means little Christs. It was, it was a, a pejorative at the time that they were labeled Christians. Oh, look at those little Jesuses running around. I wish, I pray people look at me and say, well, isn't he a little Jesus? Sadly, I've never heard that said of me as a pejorative. But one day, hopefully, I will be sanctified to the point that that's all people see. And they just think I'm a little Jesus. 
But in your Christianity, in your reality, in your Christ-likeness, and he, he, he uses the name of Christ a bunch of times in these 11 uh, verses. He tells us, uh, he starts, Rejoice in the Lord, not Christ, but Lord. Uh, to write you again is no trouble. Uh, to, for you to hear this again is no trouble, he says. You know, I, I probably said this when we went through this passage last year. But it would be like, uh, it, well, what he's saying here is, Paul, you, you preached on this already. And he says, I know, I don't mind. Well, you're thinking, or they were thinking, yeah, I wasn't saying that for your benefit. I'm telling you, you don't have to tell us again. And, and, and y'all probably do the same thing. Michael, you've said this. And, and, I'm, and my response is, yeah, I don't mind saying it again. Over and over, Paul says, I know I've told you. I'm going to tell you again. I'm going to tell you two more times. I don't mind to write you again about this. Oh, it's no trouble for me. Don't worry about me. Listen. Hear that you need to stand firm in your Christianity, in your Christ-likeness, in your little Christness. He says for us to boast in Christ. That's what we boast in. Verse 3, we boast in Christ. Do we boast in ourselves? The answer is no. We boast in Christ. In our reality, we have the value of Christ. We have the confidence of who we are. That in verse 7, he says, Everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. What's the most valuable thing in my life? Christ. What's the most important thing in my life? The gospel. To live is Christ. To die is gain. I have nothing of greater value than Jesus. Not His Roman citizenship that He used when necessary and was valuable to Him for the spreading of the gospel. His freedom as a Roman citizen got Him Am I giving away some questions for our D group? I need to be careful. Uh, uh, got him to be able to witness to Caesar himself and see the families of the guards that were guarding him come to Christ. That was what his freedom was for. That's what his freedom as a Roman citizen was for. Folks, our freedom as Americans is not so we get to do the things we want to do, but so we can share the gospel. That's the gift of our freedom. Not so we do or don't have to wear masks, not so we do or don't have to have vaccines or any of that stuff. Our freedom from America is a gift actually from God to share the gospel freely among us and around the world. That's our value. Stand firm in, your, in knowing Christ. I consider everything to be a, lost, be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 8, not, everything, not only is everything less valuable than Jesus, it is the, the, the best thing I have is knowing Christ. Stand firm in gaining Christ. Because I have suffered because of Him. It's Jesus' fault, He says, that I have suffered the loss of all things. But you know what? I consider them as dung, trash, mess, so that I may gain Christ. Y'all, Paul would put up with one more shipwreck, one more beating, one more hurricane, if that let him know Jesus better than he did prior to those things. Stand firm in gaining Christ. Stand firm in being in Christ. I consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. That's where I live. That's where I dwell. Not only should people look at us and say, oh, that little Jesus. Somebody should ask, where's Michael? He's in Jesus right now. What does that mean? 
I have no idea. But it means to, to, I mean, we're not inside him. We ask Jesus into our hearts is the phrase that we use, which isn't found in the Bible, by the way. But we use that phrase. But what he says is, I want to be in him. I want to be so wrapped up by him that that is the, the place that I live, my sphere of influence. If you remember, um, apparently I'm using my hands too big here. I got to move this over. If you remember when we went through Ephesians on Wednesday nights, we talked, about a, talked a lot about being within the sphere of Jesus' influence. Stand firm in your righteousness in Christ. Being found in Him, he says, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but, a, but one that is through faith in Christ. I have righteousness in Christ. That's where all my goodness comes from. I, have, I stand firm in my faith. In Christ, the righteousness of, from God based on va- uh, faith. Verse 10, my goal is to know Him, the power of His resurrection. Well, and then assuming that I will uh, uh, be conformed to His death. So I just put them in a different order in the list up here. We stand firm in His death. His death is our forgiveness. His death was our punishment being transferred. He was our substitute. And then we stand firm in His resurrection. That because He rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. These are our reality. This is who we are inherently as Christians. This is the new creature. We're not what we were. We are a new creation. We are something brand new. The Scripture is replete with this imagery of being completely different the moment after we are saved than we were the moment before we were saved. This is who we are. But sadly, some of us want the name Christian without any of the responsibility, without any of the obedience, without any of the sanctification. Y'all, Christianity isn't a label. It is a complete consumption of our life by Christ. It's not just a name. That's one of the commandments. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. While we don't misuse the name of the Lord in our speech, that's not what that verse is primarily talking about. That verse is talking about taking the name of Christ and putting it on you, but it doesn't mean anything, it doesn't change anything, it doesn't affect anything in your life. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. And Paul is telling them to stand firm in your reality as Christians. Let your life be consumed by Christ. Every aspect, every part. Stand firm, verses 12 through 21, in your tenacity. In your tenacity. Not that I've already reached the goal or succeeded in being perfect, but I am working on it. Paul says, and I will continue to work on it. And he continues to work on it until the day he dies. We work, we push, we press on. The Christian life is work. If you find the Christian life easy, you're not doing it right. That's just the the way it is. It's not supposed to be easy. In this life, you will have troubles. When they persecute you for my name's sake. Not if and not might. But you will, and when you do. So if we are breezing through life as a Christian, we're not doing it right. It is work. But as we work, Paul says as he moves through this paragraph, we hold fast to the truth of God's Word. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. We hold fast to the truth of God's Word, and we ask for clarity when we struggle with it. And if, he says in verse 15, and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. We push, we work, we press on, we take the truths of Scripture that we know and we apply them to our lives. And those things we struggle with, we ask God for help with and on, and we work with each other. We disciple each other. We sharpen each other. We partner in unity. 
verse 17, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters. Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. And that is how we come to grips with the knowledge of those passages that we struggle with or those passages we don't like. I've told you before, my least favorite passage in the Bible. Probably y'all even remember it. The Pharisees asked Jesus, guy marries a woman, he dies, no children. There was the the law that the brother married the the woman to give her an inheritance uh, if there wasn't a, a, a child involved. So on and so forth, down through however many brothers, they all died. Who is she going to be married to in heaven? Ha, 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 we got him now. And Jesus' response is my least favorite verse in the Bible. Oh, in heaven, there won't be marriage nor being given in marriage. I like her. 21 years I've liked her. I plan on liking her for another 51, 71, something like that. And when I die and go to heaven, whether it's me first or her first, it'll be her first because I don't want her to have to live without me. Um, I want to be with her when I see you, when I get there. That's just what I want to do. That's, that's, I, I spent the vast majority of my life with her. I want to continue doing that for all of eternity. I probably won't care when I get there. I realize that. That's not the point. I don't like the passage. I've come to grips with it. God has shown me the truth of his passage. I understand that the relationships will be different in heaven. I still don't have to like it. But God has shown me the truth of it. God has shown me clarity when I struggle with it. And part of that has been discipleship among brothers and sisters. Actually, it's her that has said, you won't care when we get there. And I'll say, I know, shut up. That doesn't matter. Paul wants them to stand firm in their tenacity. He wraps up this passage as we did last week when, I said, when we talked about who's your example We hold tightly to our heavenly kingdom. We are tenacious to hold on to who we are as believers and what we have coming and our faith and our gospel and our responsibility and we hold loosely to any earthly kingdom. So I hold loosely my marriage to Etta. I hold loosely my children. I hold loosely anything else that I consider important in this life, and I hold tightly to the kingdom because if it is important to me, I guarantee you it's important to God. But what he knows is where the influence or where the inflection should be on importance. The most important thing in my life is not Etta or not my kids. The most important thing in my life is Jesus and his kingdom. And so that is what I hold tightly to. And everything else is his to take care of and his to handle. And lastly, Paul tells us to stand firm in your love. And this gets us to verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul shows his affection using five different terms. If you read this sentence, you find that the command is only about three words in Greek. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord. Everything else is this uh, uh, just bubbling of affection. So then, my dearly loved longed for brothers and sisters, and we can say that brothers and sisters is a term of endearment as well. My joy, my crown, dear friends. So really, six different ways that Paul talks about his love for the church in Philippi. I said when we started this series in Philippians, Philippi was his favorite church. He never said you're my favorite, but it's clear it's his favorite. It was the first church he started in Macedonia after receiving the Macedonian call. Come over here. 
he wants to go this way and he tries to go that way and he can't go any of those ways and he's only got that way to go and he has the vision of the Macedonians saying, come over here, and he does. He follows the call that God gave on his life and the first convert he meets is Lydia and they start a church in Philippi and it is his favorite church. He shows his affection using five or six different terms. Stand firm in your love because we should imitate Paul, right? Imitate me, he says. Imitate him in his love. He has had to say some kind of harsh things even to this church he loves dearly. But sharing truth is loving even if truth is uncomfortable. I don't know if your parents ever said this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they enjoyed it. There's some days it hurts me a lot less than others. There's sometimes like, mm hmm, this don't hurt me at all. And then sometimes it does. Paul is saying here it hurts to share the truth, but it is necessary and it is loving. As a matter of fact, in verse 2, we get there next week, he's about to fuss at some folks. But he does not want them to lose sight of his love. He does not want Euodia and Syntyche to lose sight of his love. They have contended the, uh, for the gospel with him. When a pastor shares hard truths with his church... When Michael shares hard truths with you, it does not mean I'm angry. Sometimes I get angry, but it doesn't mean that I'm angry and I just want to be mean. It means I love you. And I don't hug freely. I mean, if you like to hug, I hug you. If you don't like to hug, I love you even more. Um, I, I don't show physical affection that much. But to share truth, especially truth that I know some of y'all ain't going to like. I do that out of love. Because I love this church and I love you. You are my dearly beloved, as Paul says here. Joy and crown. He's saying, to serve you is my joy. You are my crown. What he's saying, that he's looking forward. Your, your, your jewels that I'm going to get because I witness to you I started that church the truth is you church are jewels that I'm gonna get because I served you because I told you truth because I preached the word to you now I only get those jewels if I do it well and if I stay true to scripture but that's the reality of it that's why Paul will tell right in his letters everybody shouldn't ask to be a teacher People should not strive to be preachers because the calling is great and the standard is greater. So I will be judged more strongly even than y'all will. So if I don't tell the truth, if I don't speak truth, then I'm not fulfilling my calling. But if I don't speak the truth in love, I'm also not fulfilling my calling. And Paul understands that his sharing of truth in unifying love has one goal, to stand firm, for the church to stand firm, which is my purpose in preaching. Different preachers have different reasons behind their preaching. Same calling, but different focus. And I told you at the beginning of Philippians, and I've told you along as we've move through this. My purpose is to make you stronger, stronger in Scripture, so that you can stand firm. What does Scripture say? That is what I want your response to be to everything that shows up. What does Scripture say? Scripture says to stand firm. You can only stand firm this morning if you are standing in Christ, standing in relationship with him and you only become a part of the church you can only stand firm in Christ when you accept him as your personal Lord and Savior Romans 3 23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God that's you and that's me that's Paul 
And the wages of that sin is death. We see the picture of Jesus on the cross. That's the wages, but that is also the gift. Same image, same picture. When he died, he gave us eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He proved it while you were a sinner. He died for you so that you could be saved. And all you need to do is call on him. Repent of your sins. Trust in him. And you will be saved if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. So then who does that mean isn't Lord? That means you're not. That means nobody else is. Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And you will be firmly planted. You will have the strength. You will be able to stand firm in your identity as a believer, in your responsibility to the gospel, in your humility and putting everyone else first, in your obedience to the calling of God and to your reality of who you are in Jesus. Stand firm in your tenacity to continue to be like Christ and in your love for each other. Only through Jesus can you get that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that calls us to stand firm. Thank you for the strength that your Holy Spirit gives us to stand firm when everything is working against us. When everything is coming down on us, we can stand firm because of your word, because of your Holy Spirit, because of your strength in us. God, thank you that you continue to bolster our faith. And may we live lives planted and standing firmly among your, uh, in your will and in your obedience. Lord, I pray that there's, if there's someone listening that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will accept Him as Lord and Savior. Not just, I want to take care of my sins and go to heaven, but as Lord of my life who rules and reigns uh, uh, for whom I am a, uh, a slave, or to whom I'm a slave. God, I pray that we would turn our lives to you. Believers who have found their, their stand wobbly, Lord, they would stand firm. That you would do this in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we sing in this time of response, how should you respond? As a believer, to stand firm. As an unbeliever, to accept Christ. We have uh, Tom at the Welcome Center and a couple of deacons in the back that would love to talk to you, pray with you about anything you're working on in your life right now. Now's your time to respond as we stand and sing. And when we get done singing uh, and uh, Jim closes us in prayer, I'll come back and tell you what we're doing for lunch afterwards. So let's stand and sing as the Lord works on our hearts.